crowds organized, mobilized, yeah, baby, yeah. La Salaam, comrades. Welcome to Politics in Command. Now, the following discussion is with Matteo Andante and was recorded in December of 2020. And since then, Matteo has unfortunately passed away due to cancer. And I want to commemorate him by launching the very first podcast episode on Politics in Command with his voice. His loss weighs heavier than Mount Tai. And this episode is to commemorate his life, his legacy. Mateo was a Latin American Maoist organizer based in Los Angeles. And by academic training, he was a philosopher of mathematics and a logician. But really, he was a third world revolutionary thinker. Mateo started a blog, bourgeoisphilosophy.wordpress.com. As he was disenchanted with academic philosophy, he began his blog to expose its major flaws and how it perpetuates bourgeois thinking through academic philosophy departments. The website will be linked in the show notes below, and I highly recommend for everyone to check it out. Matteo was also a co-author, among five others, who contributed to the book On Necrocapitalism, A Plague Journal. It's a political journal written as the COVID pandemic began to rise in its first year. And you can get the book at Kersplebedeb at leftwingbooks.net. Finally, I'd like to ask the listeners to check out a blog post about Matteo, which was written by Joshua Mufawad-Paul. You can find it on his blog, MLL Mayhem, found at mufawad-paul.blogspot.com. It's titled... Yet again, the weight of Mount Tai. Farewell, Comrade Mateo. And with that, let us commemorate the work, the life, the legacy of Mateo Andante. La Salam. What is philosophy? And is it important? Especially if we are aspiring communists. What is philosophy in a class-based society where one class is dominating one or more classes in that society? And how does philosophy navigate its way through such divisions? If there is a bourgeois class which dominates all, there must certainly be a bourgeois philosophy. And if there is a proletariat, there most certainly must be a proletarian philosophy. Mao Zedong once said, The whole history of philosophy is the history of the struggle and the development of two mutually opposed schools of philosophy, idealism and materialism. All philosophical currents and schools are manifestations of these two fundamental schools. The history of the struggle between idealism and materialism in philosophy reflects the struggle of interest between the reactionary class and the revolutionary class. A given philosophical tendency is, in the last analysis, a manifestation in a particular guise of the policy of the social class to which the philosophers belong. In today's episode, we'll be discussing these ideas and much, much more. Let's get started. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Uh, Like you said, my name is Mateo Andante. And by training, by academic training, I'm a philosopher of mathematics and a logician. I'm out of academia now, 
And I've spent some time thinking about the role of academic philosophy in connection to other aspects of our world, the world we live in. That is, uh, that's what the bourgeois philosophy blog is about. It's about exploring the connection between academic philosophy and the imperialist stage of capitalism. As a philosopher and, and as an intellectual from Latin America, I found my reality, the reality that I was investigating philosophically, constantly failing to be a concern of academic philosophy. I found that instead I was expected to pretend that the reality of the petty bourgeois classes of settlers in countries like the United States was universal, and I had to philosophize on that. But there's other ways of doing philosophy and of being a philosopher. So I've said something about a little bit about my ideology and my social identity, but I'll say more. Um, I am, like you said, a third world intellectual, and specifically, I'm a proletarian, feminist, revolutionary internationalist. My worldview is revolutionary Marxism in the tradition of Marx, Engels, Lenin, Stalin, and Mao. Yeah. Can I ask you, is there anything specific that happened in your life to make you, to help you realize that academic philosophy or really the academic world wasn't addressing different perspectives, especially in the world of philosophy? Is there anything specific that happened or was it just, you know, you accumulated a certain amount of knowledge that you're getting from academics and then realized that it was missing a hell of a lot? Yes. Um, the answer, uh, my answer to that question is the latter, not the former. So there was not a specific thing. It was a collection of experiences from my very first, uh, the, my very first steps into academia uh, as a philosopher. I learned uh, the very basics. I learned the history of philosophy. I learned all the major isms. Um, but at the same time, Nothing really was addressing uh, like my particular situation as somebody coming from Latin America and uh, like the reality of the reality that was being described or philosophized um, wasn't my reality. Like I felt, uh, you know, it was good to have uh, to value things like freedom and uh, and the rule of law. But oftentimes, like my people were not free and the law was used in a way, in an unjust way against us, uh, especially along the border, living on the border, crossing borders. I did not, uh, it just, the, the principles, the lofty ideals didn't seem to really apply to people like me. So it was, um, it was a collection of experiences and philosophy uh, kind of failed to to describe my my world. Can I ask one more question? Is it, you know, mainly the authors of whatever you're reading in your field in academia? Is it mainly, to put it plain and simple, white guys? Not only just white guys, but obviously from a Eurocentric patriarchal perspective? That's correct. It's mainly white guys, Eurocentric patriarchal uh, perspective. Um, it's mostly enlightenment thinkers and uh, influences on enlightenment thinkers. So classical uh, Greek philosophy, uh, some Roman philosophy, uh, and how that manifests itself in the enlightenment 
from the rationalists all the way through the empiricists and to the post uh, to the Kantians and uh, and thinkers like that. Now, in the contemporary world, it's a little bit different that you have different voices. You have black and brown and uh, gendered voices. But the problem is not the problem I still experience with philosophy is not um, it's not the problem of who is saying what it's more what they're saying irrespective of who it is so a lot of the times you'll have feminist philosophy who is still just either mimicking copying or carried out in the spirit of those thinkers that uh that just aren't living up to the reality of i I believe most of the world's people who don't live and don't get to enjoy the privileges of uh the the ruling classes of countries like the United States. Yeah. 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 I get that. I get that. So let's talk about your blog. I discovered your blog and found it interesting as well as refreshing. Uh, It covers, you know, important perspectives mainly through philosophy, but it really is more than that. Can you just take a moment and describe why you started the blog and uh, what purpose does this blog try to serve? Yes. Uh, so I started the blog. Uh, I was thinking that it should be some kind of uh, a serve the people program. So let me uh, let me say something about that. So the ability of oppressed people to do to carry out or to do philosophical activity that serves their interests is severely limited in the world today. I wanted to create a space where people who are confused and silenced by bourgeois liberalism that's dominant in academic philosophy. I wanted them uh, to see examples of philosophy done differently in a way that helps them think philosophically about their world. So one of the purposes of the blog is to provide a critique of bourgeois philosophy from the standpoint, from the point of view of people who don't benefit from the status quo of global imperialism in a way that helps the oppressed who may be struggling to fit into academia. There's a reason why uh, these concerns, the projects, proposals, and career options in academic philosophy alienate and work against the oppressed. They're supposed to do that because they're philosophizing the status quo. So I ask myself, but what about philosophically inclined people who are not served by the status quo? What about people who are trying to change the world and be in line with principles of freedom different from those of bourgeois liberalism. So I started the blog to serve them. Beautiful, beautiful. I think it's a great blog for everyone listening. Be sure to check it out. I'll have a link in the show notes to this episode. Um, Yeah, so, okay. So to set a foundation for the following discussion that we're going to have, I think it would be best to define some terms. So how would you define philosophy? Yes. Uh, okay. So that's a, that's a good question. And uh, philosophers are known. It's like an in-joke amongst philosophers that we're always defining philosophy. So here I go. Okay. <laughs> the way I think about it or the way that I define philosophy is that it is a fundamental human activity and it has to do with our social identity, with who we are. It's like making art or making music. It's an expression of a way of being by through philosophical means. 
Um, and there's many ways to characterize those means, including the a variety of methods that involve abstraction and critique. Historically, this is called analysis. And we use these uh, techniques in, draw, in making arguments and drawing conclusions using a given logic or another. This is what we call synthesis. And um, so, yeah, there's a history to these terms, but we just use those methods to express our social identity. Um, recently, there's a book uh, by Josh Mufawat Paul. Uh, it's called Demarcation and Demystification, Philosophy and Its Limits. It's a really great book. He has argued that philosophical activity is a type of clarifying activity on an intellectual domain, like biological theory, the theory of historical materialism, physical theory, or even mathematical theory. Philosophy operates on theory using those means that I described, and it attempts to clarify it. I think Josh is correct. And philosophy clarifies according to the social identity of the people producing the philosophy, according to their material interests based on social relations given prior to any theoretical or philosophical activity. So with that understanding, we can reason about philosophical activity that serves different material interests. And some of those material interests have a stake in the status quo and others don't. And that's philosophy. Marxism is the first philosophy in history to thoroughly grasp the inevitability of change and the dynamic and historical character of nature and society. For the Marxist, in the words of Engels, nothing is stable except instability, nothing is immovable except movement. In fact, the only thing which cannot alter the universe is change itself. No wonder the white supremacists in Southern Africa fear Marxism like the plague itself, for like all ruling classes, they wish to believe that their privileged way of life will last forever. The historical division of society into antagonistic classes brought the development of the division of labor to the point where manual and mental activities became sharply segregated from one another. Only the slave worked with his hands. Only the gentleman exercised his mind. The philosophical product of this social division was the development of idealism, the theoretical outlook which places the spiritual world above the world of matter and looks upon reality as the immutable work of an ideal creator, an attitude which has always formed the dominant current in ruling class thought. Dialectical materialism is the only philosophical outlook which enables us to approach the world dynamically, concretely, and in a way which helps us link up particular problems with the struggle to liberate society and mankind as a whole. It is therefore the natural and logical philosophy for all revolutionaries who have completely dedicated themselves to this struggle and have nothing to fear from change. Dialego, 1975.
just had recently had a JMP on the podcast uh, for people listening. You can check out that episode. Even though we didn't discuss that book, Demarcation and Demystification, we still talk about philosophy in a lot of ways. So I'm glad to see a little parallel here uh, with this episode and the last. Okay, so moving on, how would you define bourgeois philosophy and non-bourgeois philosophy, because you do speak a lot about these two different perspectives on your blog and through your Twitter account. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I talk a lot about that. Maybe, maybe a little too much, but yes, um, I, I try to understand the bourgeois philosophy in relation to the structures and systems of uh, economic imperialism and the social features arising from those structures and systems. So. Like, let's, uh, if we recall, uh, imperialism is a global capitalist economic system and it's a world historical milieu. It's like feudalism or colonialism. It's an economic system that determines the features of all life uh, across the world. So Lenin, Lenin called it the highest stage of capitalism. It became well pronounced in the early 1900s and the system is characterized by international monopolies and banks from some nations, the imperialist nations, competing for, uh, they're competing for production spheres and markets. The rest of the world, the exploited nations, they carry out production and resource extraction and provide markets for capital export. That's the economic world we live in. As the economic system that dominates the world imperialism overwhelmingly determines the material reality of all inhabitants of planet Earth and every, uh, every social feature that we face today, including things like militarism and war, the spread of fascism, the wealth of the few and the poverty of the many, enhanced crisis and death during this pandemic, and environmental destruction. At the same time, imperialism creates and produces a mass base for its continuation because it creates enormous wealth and prosperity for a small minority of the world's people, mostly in the first world or the imperialist countries. And these, these people share a political pro-imperialist unity and a corresponding social identity that when they express it through philosophical activity is bourgeois philosophy. So this pro-imperialist social identity is the social identity of the bourgeois classes, the classes for which imperialism is for the most part a good thing. And the philosophy that they produce, the bourgeois philosophy that serves the interests of these classes by clarifying theoretical terrains and in the language of demarcation and demystification has some very specific features. So I'm going to talk about those features, which are the defining features or the pillars of bourgeois philosophy. So first, we have idealism. Um, bourgeois philosophy is idealist in the sense that it operates in terms of categories and concepts with a supposed existence independent of the people and relations that materially, that materially constitute them. That's what enables bourgeois philosophers to philosophize concepts like knowledge without connecting to the people that know and the circumstances or what it means to produce or have access to knowledge. It is that which allows bourgeois philosophers to philosophize abstractly about power, but never, ever, ever mention capitalism. So that's the first pillar, idealism. 
Bourgeois philosophy is also individualist. Individualism is a liberal philosophical view about the role of individuals in shaping society and history. Individualism centers the experience of individuals rather than the experiences of groups in social relations. So a quick example, it promotes the liberal idea that things like oppression and exploitation are individual evils rather than things that arise from the relationships between groups. This can cash out in ethical theories that recommend actions to ameliorate a harm, but they do nothing to remove the source of the harm. Um, so that's the second pillar. It's individualism. The next pillar is uh, it's like a chauvinism. So bourgeois philosophy is also first world or imperialist country chauvinist. It ends up adopting ideologies and practices designed to justify, reinforce, and prolong the imperialist country's economic exploitation of the rest of the world. This just means that when bourgeois philosophers demarcate a terrain of inquiry, they do so along lines that exclude people who don't benefit from the status quo. They're just ruled out, like they're cordoned off. But, but philosophers carry on as if their philosophizing is universal. Um, think, for example, when, uh, when bourgeois philosopher, feminist philosopher uh, Kate Mann positions or speaks favorably of war criminal and anti-feminist enemy of the world's women, Hillary Clinton, when she positions Hillary Clinton in a positive light to talk about the connection between patriarchy and misogyny, she's expressing her first world or imperialist country chauvinism. Hillary Clinton has been instrumental, if not directly responsible for carrying out class and national attacks on both women abroad and non-Euro-American women Domestically, Hillary Clinton is just not a feminist hero of the oppressed. But for those people who willfully exclude the lives, interests, and experiences of women who are oppressed by the status quo of the imperialist countries, you know, she's great. So that type of focus, that first world chauvinism, is the fourth pillar of, uh, of bourgeois philosophy. The last one, last one, I'm not going to go on any, any further about this, but the last one is... Uh, that bourgeois philosophy adopts an uncritical attitude towards liberalism. It's a bias of bourgeois philosophy, and it just means that bourgeois philosophers take the limits that liberalism sets up for debate about itself and about anything else. They take those limits as given, and they start philosophizing. They don't question the origins of liberalism or its purpose. Now, that wouldn't really be a problem if bourgeois philosophers didn't at the same time opportunistically prey upon uh, and influence the whole world, a global audience of people who are philosophically inclined because their culture and their institutions are artificially propped up by the inequities of global imperialism, or if they didn't try to pass off uh, bourgeois philosophy as philosophy without qualification. But none of those things are the case. The whole world is ruled by... Uh, by imperialism and the liberalism of the first world um, has a massive influence on the rest of the world. So having a, an uncritical attitude uh, regarding liberalism is a problem because it ends up censoring and erasing alternative views and it shrinks philosophy to a tiny point. 
And it comes off as a bigoted echo chamber for the world's most privileged people. So that is the fourth pillar of bourgeois philosophy, an uncritical attitude towards liberalism. Yeah, yeah, I think that's so clarifying and that's so important to understand in making that distinction of what bourgeois philosophy is. You know, there's actually, as you were answering that question, it made me think of this quote from Mao, and I feel like I'm, I'm just going to read it, even though it's a little lengthy for a quote, but it's not too long. Um, he wrote this, it's called Dialectical Materialism, and Mao, Mao Zedong, wrote this in 1938. So if anybody listening, you know, they want to just uh, do an internet search, Mao Zedong Dialectical Materialism, 1938, you'll find it. He says, quote, the social origins of idealism and materialism lie in a social structure marked by class contradictions. The earliest appearance of idealism, excuse me, idealism was the product of the ignorance and superstition of savage and primitive men then, with the development of the productive forces and the ensuing development of scientific knowledge, it stands to reason that idealism should decline and be replaced by materialism. And yet, from ancient times to the present, idealism not only has not declined, but on the contrary, has developed and carried on a struggle for supremacy with materialism from which neither has emerged the victor. This kind of hints at like what you're talking about, this, this battle between bourgeois philosophy and non-bourgeois philosophy. He goes on, the reason lies in the division of society into classes. On the one hand, in its own interests, the oppressing, the oppressing class must develop and reinforce its idealist doctrines. On the other hand, the oppressed classes, likewise in their own interests, must develop and reinforce their materialist doctrines. Both idealism and materialism are weapons in the class struggle, and the struggle between idealism and materialism cannot disappear so long as classes continue to exist. Now, I'll, I'll end the quote there, but I feel like that kind of complements a lot of what you were saying um, that Mao highlighted decades ago, right? But that's yeah, yeah. that's correct. Go, no, go on, go on. I was just going to say, and it's it's still a battle between, like you say, the bourgeois philosophy, non-bourgeois philosophy, and that, you know, these are weapons for our social identity, for our struggles between classes and our social identities, so on and so forth. Yeah, that's exactly it. I, I actually um, came up with my understanding of what bourgeois philosophy is by looking at how Mao, how Marx, how Lenin, and... Um, and other Marxist uh, thinkers engaged with traditional philosophy. So Mao, that piece that you read, um, in that piece, like Mao is talking about, he's talking about idealism. So that's one of the things that Marxist philosophers are always uh, pointing out in their critique of bourgeois thinking. It's all, it becomes about concepts, abstract concepts unconnected to the material reality of people. And um, so that's, that's, one of the, that's one of the pillars. And yes, so long as there's class society, we are going to have these conflicts. And right now, the main con one of the main conflicts in, in human society is the conflict between the imperialist countries and everyone else. And, um, and it's cashing out in, in philosophy. It cashes out as bourgeois philosophy versus 
non-bourgeois philosophy or Marxist philosophy. Yeah. yeah. Good quote. Yeah, yeah good yeah, quote. Yeah. Um, okay, so moving on. In, in your blog, and again, for the uh, audience and the listeners, check out this blog. There's there's so much good material in there for us to read, reread, um, and really share it on social media if you can. But um, in, in your blog, in one of your blog posts, you said, quote, the problem is that while bourgeois liberalism is the dominant ideology in Western academic philosophy, bourgeois liberalism is a game only the world's most privileged people can play. And what first world philosophers have to say both philosophically and about important issues, their ideas and their recommendations generally excludes most of the world's people in terms of consideration, relevance, and aspiration. I think this is important, but could you elaborate on uh, on this quote? And would this be a simple way of understanding first world chauvinism? Yes, yes. Uh, okay, I, I, I think I remember that quote. Uh, yeah, so I do say uh, that bourgeois liberalism is a game that only the most privileged people can play. The statement that you quote connects two features of bourgeois philosophy. The first feature is the uncritical attitude that bourgeois philosophy has towards liberalism. Bourgeois philosophers assume the standpoint of liberalism and are uncritical of it. We've talked about that, I said uh, earlier. Uh, The second feature is first world or imperialist country chauvinism, which is a bias for covering up or prolonging the concrete relation the imperialist countries have to the rest of the world, one of economic exploitation and national oppression. The connection is that those of us who are the, uh, that those of us who are on the receiving end of economic exploitation and national oppression, we just can't be uncritical of liberalism. We don't benefit from imperialism, and imperialism's bourgeois philosophy doesn't express our social identity. We need a different sort of philosophy. So uh, to answer your question, the statement is a way to understand the problem or the predicament faced by oppressed people when faced with bourgeois philosophy. And that includes both the uncritical engagement with liberalism and first world or imperialist country chauvinism. It's a a game that only imperialist country people can play. We, um, we, on the other hand, we can't... uh, we can't uh, practice that liberalism because it doesn't apply to us. And try to cross the border if you're not the right skin color. Get pulled over by a cop if you're not the right skin color, you know. Try to exercise your civil rights. And that's, the, the story of liberalism ends really quickly. And oftentimes it ends at the end of a baton. liberal political philosophers like John Locke and Jean-Jacques Rousseau had argued for the rule of reason and equality for all, but did not include women in their understanding of those deserving of equality, particularly political equality. They failed to apply their liberal theory to the position of women in society. The values of liberalism, including the core belief in the importance and autonomy of the individual, developed in the 17th century, 
It emerged with the development of capitalism in Europe in opposition to feudal patriarchal values based on inequality. It was the philosophy of the rising bourgeoisie. The feudal values were based on the belief of the inherent superiority of the elite, especially the monarchs. The rest were subjects, subordinates. They defended hierarchy with unequal rights and power. In opposition to these feudal values, liberal philosophy advanced a belief in the natural equality and freedom of human beings. They advocated a social and political structure that would recognize equality for all individuals and provide them with equality of opportunity. This philosophy was rigorously rational and secular and the most powerful and progressive formation of the Enlightenment period. It was marked by intense individualism. Yet, the famous 18th century philosophers like Rousseau and Locke did not apply the same principles to the patriarchal family and the position of women within it. This was the residual patriarchal bias of liberalism that applied only to men in the market. Anuradha Gandhi You know, in, in another one of your blog posts, you um, there's one called Welcome, right? And and it, it goes into a lot of what the blog is about, the perspectives that the blog is going to talk about. But I saw that you gave an excellent explanation of, quote, mansplaining, right? And I know that this word gets tossed around a lot in progressive to leftist spaces. And although it may be overused, it certainly is a real aspect of how patriarchy impacts the behavior of men. Um, can you tell us what exactly mansplaining is and how it is related to bourgeois philosophy? Because I think it's important for us to really hammer down in more detail what mansplaining is because it is overused all the time. Yeah, yes, of course. Um, I, uh, I spent a lot of time trying to come up with a good uh understanding of mansplaining for that for that blog post uh and uh yeah so of course like like you said in, in, like in everyday use mansplaining just describes a man's uh condescending and gendered male's condescending behavior when he lectures a woman on a topic he knows very little about it's when a man incorrectly assumes that a woman knows even less about a topic than he does um, there was a piece in 2008 in the LA Times by Rebecca Solnit, and uh, it, show, it showcased a portion of her essay. And the essay was titled, uh, Men Explain Things to Me. Uh, and she sets out some key features and effects of uh, the mansplaining phenomena as she relates her experience being talked over, talked down to, and made to endure uh, the frothy commentary of less qualified men just because she is a woman. So I noted some similarities between that or um, between that experience and the way that bourgeois philosophy is produced and presented by bourgeois philosophers. So to be very precise, um, mansplaining happens when a gendered male shares his thoughts in a way conditioned by his privilege. What happens is that his recommendations are often outlandishly prohibitive or hurtful towards women and or completely irrelevant to them. And it's conspicuously out of place or inappropriate 
to women who know better and are better qualified. The upshot, the result is, is like male obliviousness and a clumsy state of foolishness in the presence of self-serving oppression that's completely transparent to everyone who isn't insulated by the privileges of patriarchy. Now, the, the key thing, the key thing for me at least, is that mansplaining is possible because of patriarchy. And patriarchy is a system of structural injustice, an unjust power imbalance regarding gender that benefits gendered males through privileges acquired through the historical and ongoing exploitation, disenfranchisement, and oppression of gendered women. Um, so mansplaining is produced by patriarchy or it's enabled by patriarchy. So now the, the, the product and presentation of bourgeois philosophy is very much like mansplaining. It's a type of privileged or imperialist country explaining that's possible because of imperialism, which itself is a type of structural injustice and unjust power imbalance regarding nations that benefits the bourgeois classes of the imperialist countries through the historical and ongoing exploitation, disenfranchisement, and oppression of the rest of the world. And just like mansplaining, bourgeois philosophy comes principally from class and national privileges, which underpin gender and ability privileges. And the result is that the ideas and recommendations that occur to bourgeois philosophers are often prohibitive, or hurtful towards most of the world's people and or completely irrelevant to them and are conspicuously out of place uh, or inappropriate to people who know better and are better qualified. Bourgeois philosophers, just like your basic mansplainer, they come off as oblivious and foolish. They, they're mired in a state of self-serving oppression that's completely transparent to everyone who's not insulated by the privileges of imperialism. And that's my, that's my experience and the experience of countless others trying to do philosophy. I think that's extremely important. And, you know, another aspect I want to, I want to, I'll just mention briefly is being, you know, my experience being in organizational spaces, there's a lot, the attitude, there's an attitude that is prevalent that I think we need to combat is that when it comes to gender contradictions and gender issues and all that, much of the time, a lot of the men or gender males say, well, the women have to do the work to explain this kind of stuff to me. Or, you know, they're, they're placing the labor on uh, comrades who are not gendered males, right? And, yes, yes. Which is offsetting the labor that men themselves should be doing in the first place. And so, I mean, so yeah. I, I imagine some people would be like, well, we don't, we want someone else to explain mansplaining or something like that. But I would say also like we, you know, men, I, I'm a cis male. I, I would say that I would have to definitely work on understanding gender contradictions and issues and work towards resolving those contradictions and not be like someone on the sidelines waiting for women or non-binary comrades to step up and, and resolve these issues, which is like, they're on the receiving end of this oppression of this type of exploitation. Right. So I just wanted to make that point because it's, I just, I don't know. I don't know if it's the spaces I'm in, but I see it all too, too often. Yeah. Um, I, I, I've experienced, uh, 
Well, I want to say I want to say that I agree because I've experienced that as well uh, in organizing spaces, and um, I think um, you know you were quoting Mao early earlier. Um, I think we can learn a lot from uh, the experience of the Chinese communists uh, during the revolutionary period in China, um, and uh, the idea of criticism and self criticism and uh, and reliance. Uh, on uh, taking uh, taking ownership, I suppose, of our uh, of our revolutionary transformation. So, uh, if you have, we want to accept as, as cisgendered males, we want to accept the leadership of uh, of women and of non cis people um, because they want to they want to point us in the right direction and open our eyes to their oppression. And uh, but we need to do. Then, 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 then it's our job to do the work to transform ourselves and to use our power and our ability uh, to transform the world to benefit everybody and to uh, and, and to further empower their leadership role. So I totally, I totally agree. Um, and uh, yeah, and 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 that's that, that. I think that's what I have to say. Uh, and I and I and I think in organizing spaces, if. Um, if this attitude was a bit more prevalent, we would end up we would end up seeing a lot less hypocrisy and a lot less uh, what is it um, uh, stutter stuttering in uh, in our progress forward. Yeah, you said it a lot more elegantly than I did, and and I totally agree. And this kind of <laughs> this kind of goes into our next question, which is about diversity, right? And you know, on the surface, diversity. Sounds like a great, great thing, right? But in in a two part blog series that you wrote, I believe, right, is yes, is is talking about diversity specifically in Western academic philosophy, um, and you're actually countering it. One thing you said was, "quote Diversity is a big concern for first world people who position it as an element of quote progress for their imperialist society." And because from the point of view of non-bourgeois philosophy, it's one of the main tools of neo-colonialism, diluting the national identity of oppressed peoples and splitting nationally oppressed groups in the first world from solidarity with the rest of the world, end quote. Now, how is, quote, diversity used in the first world to imply, quote, progress? And how is it one of the main tools for neo-colonialism? Yes, uh, this is a great question, and uh, because neocolonialism is like a, a a big concept, I'm 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 probably going to talk for a bit, but but bear with bear with me. So um, okay. So from the point of view of so what is diversity? So from from the point of view of liberalism, the idea behind the talk of diversity, and you'll hear corporations talk about this, and uh, academic committees they they talk, they talk in this way. Um, the idea behind that talk is that any dimension of differentiation between groups of people is diversity. So people from different classes, economic classes, people from different nations or race, uh, when nation is racialized from different races, different genders, different sexual orientations, different abilities. So that is diversity. And we're, we're, what we're told is that a failure to appreciate and respect those differences results in exclusion 
which can result in injustice along lines of class, nation, race, gender, sexual orientation, and ability. So in order to avoid that, the story goes, institutions should practice inclusion, which is when they take steps to enforce or promote diversity. That's the standard diversity line across the board in all bourgeois liberal institutions. Um, so if, if you assume that the problems of oppressed, that, the, that the problems that oppressed people face in bourgeois society are caused by institutional failures to welcome differences, then diversity will seem like a really good goal. And inclusion is going to seem like a progressive reform on a system of inclusion. That's also how the story goes. That's why it's positioned as very positive. Um, but if you look at it from a revolutionary or a non-bourgeois standpoint, that picture of diversity and inclusion is incorrect. The problems of bourgeois society for oppressed people are not merely that different ways of being are excluded from full participation in, in institutions. That's just a symptom of the underlying problem. The actual problem for oppressed people is that capitalism necessarily and unjustly creates groups of people, some with political and economic power and the power to determine their social destiny and some without. Capitalism has inherited some of these group differences from earlier historical modes of production like feudalism and slavery. But the class, national or racialized gender and ability differences that we know today are based on unequal power relations of contemporary capitalism. These differences manifest themselves in class chauvinism, white supremacy, cis-heteropatriarchy, and ableism. And these are just not the types of things that are going to go away with diversity programs. Diversity and inclusion initiatives, diversity statements, and institutional commitments to diversity are not supposed to change or even acknowledge the root cause of the problem faced by oppressed people, but they are supposed to cover them up. So instead of addressing the political and economic inequality of capitalism that results in the injustice of the various isms that oppressed people experience in imperialist institutions, in academia and in academic philosophy in particular, what diversity and inclusion programs are designed to do is to keep bourgeois, white, cis-hetero, able power in place, unquestioned and unthreatened with the outward trapping of progress towards a supposed welcoming society where subaltern populations live happily in spite of underlying injustice. This situation is frequently positioned by institutional power holders and apologists for one or more of those isms as providing oppressed people uh, a quote-unquote opportunity to succeed or a chance at quote-unquote representation. Uh, but, you know, looking at it from a non-bourgeois standpoint, this, this representation ends up coming at a cost, uh, and it's a big cost. So while diversity and inclusion programs formally recognize subaltern populations, they promote participation and inclusion of people from oppressed groups who produce and encourage perspectives and courses of action that maintain power in the hands of bourgeois, white, 
cis-hetero, and the abled wing of imperialism. So consider, for example, like uh, recently, we've seen it in the news, the quote-unquote success of Kamala Harris in her election to vice president of the American empire. Bourgeois liberals promote her election to vice president as a step towards diversity and inclusion in high office. But in her tenure as a prosecutor in San Francisco and as California's top cop, attorney general, Harris opposed investigation into police shootings. She implemented punitive anti-truancy policies that criminalized poor black and brown families. And she refused early release of inmates that qualified for it because it would reduce slave labor, like climate crisis, fire brigades in California. That, that to me is just outrageous. Like, so in other words, Harris's success amounts to upholding and expanding white supremacist imperialism. And, and, and what I end up saying is that this type of this type of representation and its corresponding success cases are neocolonial. Now there's that term. Um, what is it? Neocolonialism is a way to carry out imperialism in situations where direct colonial rule is untenable. And it works by providing representation and nominal independence to neocolonial countries or peoples while maintaining power and economic control in the hands of the imperialist countries. Diversity and inclusion programs do the same thing at the institutional level in the imperialist country. So in academic philosophy, this happens when you have women, queer, black, brown, disabled, poor, trans, and third world philosophers doing and promoting philosophy that serves the interests of the ruling classes of imperialism. Diversity and inclusion are among the main ways to carry out neocolonial domination because they cover up the root causes of the problems faced by oppressed groups. And they lead us to believe that we're making progress because you have a brown person, you have a queer person, you have a disabled person uh, doing philosophy, but what they're really doing is helping to entrench, uh, helping to entrench imperialism. And that, that's why I say it's neocolonial and it's not really the way forward. I think that's an excellent analysis. And, you know, as much as we may hate on the bourgeois class, we got to give it to them for them to come up with these clever ideas and terms like diversity to really supplement neocolonialism they have come up with some really clever ways to to just trick people into thinking and doing and acting against their own interests while presenting it as progress quote progress success yeah. etc and so yeah I, I mean i'm really glad you you made that distinction between diversity and neocolonialism because diversity not even in just academic institutions but in the workplace right in so many areas of life they promote this word diversity 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 right um but i think your explanation of it and tying it to neocolonialism is just spot on so yeah for people listening definitely read that uh two-part blog series on diversity so, yeah, let's talk about another post uh, that you wrote. It's titled, quote, Bourgeois Representations of Marxism in Economics and Philosophy. So you tackle the question, why are bourgeois representations of Marx more popular in bourgeois philosophy education 
than in bourgeois economics education in contemporary imperialist academia. Can you describe some of what you answered to this question and why is it important to understand this response? Yes, yes, yes. You know, I, I think I remember that post. Um, it came from a discussion on Twitter. So someone on Twitter, uh, 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 they, on Twitter, they asked, why is Marxism more popular in philosophy departments than in economic departments? Uh, good question, because uh, it might seem that way. You know, you might think that philosophy departments, they're still talking about Marxism, but you take an economics class and it just never comes up. Um, so the answer that I gave has to do with what I see as, um, uh, as the neocolonial work or the neocolonial mission of academic institution in, institutions in the imperialist countries. Um, we talked a little bit about neocolonialism already, um, and, and it's basically a way to have oppressed people perpetuate imperialism and keep us in bondage while making it seem that we're on our way to ending our oppression. Academia in the imperialist countries plays an important role in ensuring that, so in carrying out that mission. So under imperialism, education uh, has the mission uh, has its mission, and that is to indoctrinate the general population, that means all everybody in the imperialist country, into the technical know-how and bourgeois ideology needed to sustain the neocolonial political order that characterizes the way of life of the imperialist ruling classes. The most important component of this neocolonial mission across the sciences, the social sciences, and the humanities is limiting the space of intellectual activity to what is bourgeois. So it's not just limited to philosophy. You go into any of the other disciplines, anthropology, psychology, sociology, and they will immediately begin by limiting all intellectual activity to things that are bourgeois. That is, remember the, uh, the earlier we talked about the pillars of bourgeois philosophy, that's first world chauvinism, idealism, individualism, and uncritical engagement with liberalism. Imperialist educators in all areas of formal education in bourgeois society normalize prejudicial, prejudicial sanctions for ways of being and ways of carrying out science, social science, and the humanities that are not within that scope. Once education is cordoned off to the space of the bourgeois, then technical and ideological indoctrination can take place. But that's the first step. In, um, indoctrination uh, takes place only after the space has been limited off to the bourgeois. Now, the reason that Marxism figures more in bourgeois philosophy than in bourgeois economics is that the neocolonial mission of imperialist education uses bourgeois representations of Marxism and philosophy for different reasons than it does in economics. And what I mean is this, the way that Marxism is presented in bourgeois economics is through revision, mischaracterization, ridicule, and most importantly, a mission of the known ways of organizing the political economy of human society in non-bourgeois ways, which is an existential threat to the bourgeois way of being of imperialist society. And it serves to alienate people whose interests are served by learning, advancing, and implementing Marxist economics from the space of economic investigation in the imperialist institutions and prejudicing the general educated population 
against any such efforts. So, for example, if you um, if you are a third world person interested interested in uh, in, uh, in uh, agrarian reform or in rapid industrialization of your country, uh, you might go and look at China and the Soviet Union and look at their how how they did it, yeah, and look at the what programs worked and what programs didn't. And you find yourself in economics classes and you raise your hand and you bring that up, they're just going to laugh you off. They won't even consider it. They will ridicule you and you will never, ever, ever raise your hand again because they will bully you out of that space. So what they end up doing is just uh, misrepresenting, ridiculing, uh, failing to mention, omitting. And that's the strategy because actual non-bourgeois economics are such a threat that they just can't even stand it. You know, it doesn't enter uh, the realm of, do- uh, of discussion. And uh, so the main goal in, in bourgeois economics is to turn people off from studying Marxist economics. And the main strategy is ridicule and bullying. And that's the end of it. That's as far as you get. After that, it's just neoliberalism all the way through and through micro, macro, uh, like I'm a logician, so I know a lot of a ton of math, and I took advanced uh, graduate economics, mathematical economics, and it's just models of the same sort of thing that we see today uh, played out uh, in in the in the in global imperialism. So that's the end of it in economics, but in in bourgeois philosophy, it's a little bit different. So bourgeois representations of Marxism in philosophy. They help the neocolonial mission of imperialist academia by paying a lip service to Marxist philosophy. So unlike in economics, where no one can be a Marxist, in philosophy, everyone can be a Marxist, so long as Marxism is treated in a bourgeois way, so long as it's treated uh, as something ideal to be evaluated without context, as a lifeless uh, collection of categories, or as a matter of individual choice, solely concerned with gaining insight into an abstract existential subject as something compatible with liberalism and otherwise harmless that has been, quote unquote, distorted by actual communists like Marx, Lenin, Mao, you know, uh, and uh, and used to endanger the way of people who benefit from capitalism during its highest stage. So in bourgeois philosophy, everyone can just be a Marxist in that sense. And bourgeois philosophy uh, and bourgeois society can appear to be democratic and diverse in terms of ideas, the market, the so-called marketplace of ideas. And that is part of neocolonialism. Because you can ask yourself, how can bourgeois philosophy or bourgeois society be narrow and chauvinistic if academia itself is brimming with Marxist emancipatory ideas? Well, just like we can ask the same about police forces in the United States. How can the police be a racist institution if there's if there's diversity hires? Um, it's easy. Neocolonialism is the form of white power and imperialism where there are diversity hires in the police force. And similarly, neocolonialism is the form of white power where Marxist philosophy is common currency amongst the educated so long as it's bourgeois, so long as it's just an area of competence and not an expression of social identities defined against imperialism that serves to achieve the practical goals of national liberation and socialism for oppressed people. So yeah, you can be a Marxist, but as soon as you start using Marxist philosophy to better yourself, to change the world, to change your institutions, 
then uh, then you're no longer now you're just a, an aberration. You know, you go back to the the model of Marx of economics and uh, of Marxism and economics department. You become excluded, alienated. Um, I hope I've answered your question. Uh, that was a bit involved. But, uh, no, yeah. that was an excellent response to the question. I just want to remind some of the listeners, even myself, of this framework of the base and superstructure, right? The economic base and the political ideological superstructure. And that remembering that we still have capitalist modes of production in the economic base, and therefore we will always have that general rule of thumb that that superstructure is going to have this dialectical supporting uh, relationship with that economic base to reinforce the capitalist mode of production, right? So whether it's in academia, in the workplace, in politics, in the government, whatever, uh, like you just said, um, these ideas, these revolutionary ideas, emancipatory ideas, Marxist ideas, although they be they may be somewhat acknowledged, this acad- academic institution, as long as the capitalist mode of production is in place, will always reinforce that capitalist mode of production with its own philosophy and its ideas in those institutions. Um, so that basic idea of the base and su- superstructure is something that I thought about while you were. Um, uh, giving that that response, and I think it's a general rule of thumb that still applies. Yes, um, that's totally right. Um, I, I to to put it in those terms, I basically think that bourgeois philosophy, contemporary bourgeois philosophy, is part of the ideological superstructure that, uh, like, um, what is it called? Uh, it it exists in a kind of dialectical relationship with the economic base of imperialism. So it uh, it is produced by imperialism, but it also uh, reinforces. It is produced and producing by uh, economic imperialism. So uh, yeah, it, it, exactly. And that's the struggle we have as um, as people who are trying to find an alternative way uh, of, of living and doing the world other than imperialism, we need to uh, focus on... Uh, Really focus on where our ideology is coming from as we're trying to change that super that that that, that economic base and simultaneously transform our own thought. Vladimir Lenin once said. Since there can be no talk of an independent ideology formulated by the working masses themselves in the process of their movement, the only choice is either bourgeois or socialist ideology. There is no middle course, for man has not created a third ideology, and moreover, in a society torn by class antagonisms, there can never be a non-class or an above-class ideology. Hence, to belittle the socialist ideology in any way, to turn aside from it in the slightest degree, means to strengthen bourgeois ideology. Yeah, I want to actually, can we expand on that idea real quick? You know, there's some basic questions that I want to end off with before we we end this discussion that listeners Mm -hmm. can take away. And it's something that's been repetitive, but I think it still needs to be repetitive. And we need to constantly be aware 
do we have a philosophy? What philosophy is it? What's our worldview? What's our perspective? And, and why, is, why is that important, right? So like, can I just simply ask you, does everyone have a philosophy, whether they know it or not? And why is it important to claim and be conscious and aware of the philosophy that, we're, that we are having, that we are enacting, that, that we are actively using to see the world? Yes, yes. Um, I can definitely answer. That's a good question. Um, so like I said earlier, so actually doing philosophy, philosophy is an activity and it has to do with analysis and th- synthesis, analyzing arguments, using a logic to put arguments together. And uh, like Josh, uh, like JMP says, uh, we do that in order to demarcate terrains uh, of uh, intellectual activity. So does everyone have a philosophy? I think a better question is, does everybody do philosophy? And the question, the answer to that question is, not everybody does philosophy, but everybody can do philosophy. And when we start doing philosophy, we are doing it from our, our, our standpoint, our, uh, our social identity. So what I claim is that philosophy is an expression of our social identity by philosophical means. Um, and what are the things that we need to be looking at for when we're doing philosophy? Um, that is, uh, we need to be looking out for whether our, our philosophy is uh, helping our social identity or advancing it, or whose social identity are we aspiring to mimic or to, uh, or to re, um, uh, reaffirm? So I came to the United States and I enrolled in philosophy programs, and I was asked to adopt or pretend to have the social identity of liberal settlers who benefit from uh, the status quo of, of imperialism. But that's not really my social identity. My social identity is more like the types of people who are victims of that, uh, of that imperialism. So maybe I need to express that social identity. And how do I do it philosophically? And, um, well, uh, I'm struggling with that. That's what I, that's what I'm doing. My life is defined around that. And, um, I hope I've answered your question. Yeah. Can I also add, I, I feel like you touched on it. Um, it's, and this is something that I've read before and I do believe in is that if we don't actively, as you say, like use philosophy, engage with it, then our default philosophy is what the ruling classes give us and indoctrinate us with, which is this liberal ideology, this, this bourgeois philosophy that we are then more susceptible to that neo-colonial mindset, right? So if we, we yeah. aren't actively being aware of it, our default setting is what we're indoctrinated with. Yeah, we, uh, human beings, we're, 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 we're social beings. We're social beings and uh, part of socialization includes socialization into ideology and ways of doing things. Um, right now, oppressed people don't have the political and economic power to determine uh, the course of society according to a given to, according to their social identity, we inherit and we are given uh, the um, we're given uh, the ideology 
and the ways of doing things from the ruling classes. So yes, you, you're totally right. If we're not up on it and aware of how we're thinking and the role of our thinking in our activity, then uh, we will end up uh, working through and working for uh, the ruling classes and basically our oppressors. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, let's move on. Um, with everything discussed, what can the audience take away from this discussion that we're having, as well as from your blog, specifically to apply the different class outlooks of philosophy into our daily lives and especially our organizing efforts? Yes, that's uh, that's good. That's a good question. Um, so, so one of the things, you know, I, I, I'm a philosopher, and I and I and I work in the in the philosophical sphere. I educate people and uh, and all of that. Uh, and, and I read a lot of philosophy with uh, with young people and uh, with workers. So, one of the things that I tell aspiring philosophers, and that I mention in all the study groups and reading groups that I host and that I've participated in over the years, is that just like we become practiced at identifying different schools of thought and ways of reasoning in philosophy, things like realism, anti-realism, deontology, utilitarianism, empiricism, and rationalism, and the like, it's important to become practiced at identifying the class outlook of a philosophy and of philosophers. One sure way to do it is by asking whether the bit of philosophy that we're considering or that we're reading or the book in front of us, is it idealist? Is it individualist? Is it first world or imperialist country chauvinist? And is it uncritical of liberalism? If it exhibits any one of those features, then we know that it has a certain class outlook that's defined against oppressed people. And we have to be careful when we engage with it um, since it might lead us down an incorrect or false path, and we may end up, uh, you know, making it wild or inappropriate recommendations. Um, so when a bit of philosophy or a text is lacking those, then we know that it's something that we can start to build with in order to produce philosophy that expresses the way of being of oppressed people and can help us think through ways of ending our oppression, and that way we're more be we're better prepared when we are in an organizing committee or trying to put an event together. And somebody says, "Well, that event is going to be adventurous," or "No, I think that event is giving too much to liberalism. We need to be more, you know, more proletarian in this view." You're you're, you're equipped to be able to assess that, um, and uh, so that's 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 what I say. We need to be practiced in identifying. Uh, the the outlook the class outlook of philosophers and of philosophy mateo this has been a really excellent conversation i really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to speak with me and the listeners now before we go can you just let everybody know where the comrades can find your work follow you on social media and can you talk about any upcoming projects you may be publishing uh, yes. Um, well, uh, thanks so much for having me on the podcast. Uh, the blog is, um, like you said earlier, it's at bourgeois philosophy, all one word, bourgeois philosophy uh, dot wordpress dot com. And I'm also on Twitter. I'm uh, at bourgeoisophy. 
And if any of your listeners want to organize or participate in a study group, that's the best place to get in contact with me and to get involved. Uh, Thanks so much for having me on uh, on the podcast, getting me to think through these issues uh, that I think I think about them a lot. But it's so uh, it's so good to find a like minded individual and really get uh, you know hash through these things. I really appreciate it. Did you figure it out yet? What to do with the cigarette about? Let them run in my mouth that haven't slept well in a couple of days. Trying to figure it out, but I'm stuck in the shapes that I'm handed. Power to the people, they demand it. What kind of power, man, I can't understand it. Was it booming in the Soviet Union? Presuming that it was Lenin that you zoomed in? Was Stalin in some hell? If not, it's an OVF. Common F deserve to get killed. I'm split like the sign of Soviet. Am I just a liberal if I ain't got the point yet? Can't make all if you can't take a stand But this shit right here For those still fall Power to the Soviets Still will defend Cause it was the first time That they made the attempt But left calm and calm Made me cynical Saying Vladimir's Just a parliamentary liberal Not to say that I unite With that position Or that vanguardism It's a part efficient I'm still learning On the journey And I'm burning up Cause the planet's getting fucked While I'm yearning For another book Another page Another word of wisdom Wanna go But also wanna wait To learn more about the system If you grapple with the word Like dialect that's okay, take your time, baby It's a crazy amount we gotta learn just to get shit I can't take this bullshit anymore What about practice? We gotta talk tactics Talk last reality spilling on your mattress Can't go to sleep, think about marks and shit You may get the point, but it's still poor marksmanship Gotta hit the street, gotta hit it fast Gotta get the ass to the mass. Gotta skip my class Gotta gotta be more proletarian than you can be Gotta get my theory from beneath the concrete Gotta sacrifice life, gotta have less fun You don't know what they do with smiles where I'm from Got a whip for my back and another for my face Bang, bang, till I don't crave bourgeois taste Forgive me, Lord, for I've sinned and thought in pure petty bourgeois thoughts. Grab me a revisionist so I may resurrect as a true revolutionary, true and perfect. Listen, comrade, practice is mad important. Unapplied theory, nothing going forward. But sometimes we get stuck inside a fortress. Reading same shit, same shit, it gets boring. Gotta get funky, gotta, gotta get creative. Gotta read another paper about battle and a slave. Gotta stick in my hole, gotta do research. I mean, search, then see if it works, yeah. Emphasis on if Styles and not just reread now. Wow, wow, what a life I've been gifted. Don't want to sacrifice, but uplifted. Then have the guns come assistant. Build up the neighborhood, make it strong. Break oppressive bonds, make new ones. Yeah. But what do I know? Cause there ain't no Bible describing how to battle for survival. All I got is curiosity and contradictions that amount, but also move mountains quite violently. Revolutionary doubt. I'm searching what I'm certain of. I'm carrying out. Yeah.